Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word and to study and have you show us what you'd want us to see from it. We just ask you to bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost, the, the disciples were in the upper room. They got baptized in the Holy Spirit. The flame... The flames were shown over their heads. They started speaking in other languages. The people were mocking them, saying they were drunk. And then Peter starts preaching his mes- his first his first message that's recorded. Um, Boy, that sounds like the Tower of Babel. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read 14, even though we made it through 15. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them. You men of Judah and all you that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words, for these are not drunk as, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour, but it is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out on in those days of my spirit, and you shall, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and noble, notable day of the Lord, Lord, day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves also know him being delivered unto you delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised from the dead having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be be beholden of it And David spoke concerning him, for I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also was my flesh rest in hope. Okay, I'm going to stop there because I don't even know I'm going to make it that far. Peter stands before the people. We're going to find out by the end of this chapter, 3,000 people get saved in, on his first message, which is a pretty good, pretty good first message. Right? But he's standing up before the Jews, and he says, they're making fun of him. They say, these guys aren't drunk. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. We're not drunk yet. Uh, and, you know, I never understood why they would even say they were drunk. You know, they're, they're speaking foreign languages. Everybody's hearing languages they haven't heard. And so the, the first thing you come up with is they're drunk. Uh, you know, now if they were just babbling and making incoherent noises, I could understand maybe saying they're drunk. Uh, but you know, speaking other languages, that never has made any sense to me. But then Peter goes, this is that which the prophet Joel said. Now it's kind of interesting because Peter is speaking from a book that most Christians have never read. And to be honest, most Jews haven't read. Because Jews, if they're if they are really devout, devout Jews, read the Pentateuch. And if they're really, really devout, they might read some of the prophets. So all of a sudden, Peter, as they look at him, an ignorant fisherman who doesn't know anything, stands up and quotes a book that most of the rabbis aren't going to quote from. Now, and this is kind of interesting. As we get to know God's word, there'll be times that he will bring back verses to us from books that we never even really remember reading sometimes. And so he quotes Joel. And this verse that he talks about from Joel primarily is an in-days quote. But he also applies the first part of it to their day. So this is from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And he says, This shall come to pass in the last days that God will pour out my spirit upon the flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. So we're going to stop there because this this is the part that he's actually talking about that's happened. 
they are showing signs. God has come upon them, and it said that they shall prophesy. This is something that when we read the word prophesy in the Bible, that does not always refer to predicting the future. Okay, prophesy in its most basic definition is to speak with the authority of God. So pretty much, if a pastor is worth his salt or a teacher is worth their salt, when they are teaching or preaching, they are prophesying. They're not necessarily predicting the future, but they're speaking with the authority of God. Now, if they're not, find another church, another teacher. <laughs> uh, especially if they're not usually. And there are lots of pastors out there in churches that don't prophesy. They're barely preaching. Uh, they might read a scripture and then talk about whatever they feel like talking about. They're not literally teaching in God's word and under his authority. And then he says, not only will they prophesy, but they will see visions. And this word for visions is the idea of seeing something. You know, seeing something out there that is not, you know, as Satan's lie to it is to get people on drugs and get them on their visions. The Native Americans would do vision quests where they'd starve themselves and use hallucinatory drugs until they had some spiritual vision that came their way. And the only problem is the spiritual vision they had usually wasn't God's vision. All right? But we can have visions. And this may be some God saying, this is what I want you to do. This is the wonderful thing. People get into their heart that God wants them to do something. And then they tell their mom or dad and they think they're crazy. It's an amazing thing to me that even in good churches, we want lots of missionaries going out. And every parent wants missionaries to go out, but not their own kids. I've only been in one church in my life where everybody's goal was to have their kids become pastors or missionaries. It literally was their goal. If you didn't have a pastor or a missionary amongst your kids, something was wrong with you in that church. I have been in other churches that are very godly churches looking for people to go out but didn't want their kids to be the one going out. And it's kind of a sad thought. You know, God sent anybody out but my kids. And we need to be careful about that. What has God asked us to do? What has he asked our kids to do? My, I, I really wouldn't mind if all my kids went out to be missionaries and pastors. I was kind of looking forward to the day that they might go out and do that. And they all, and they all ended up in business, for the most part. Uh, which has its own mission field, but it's not really the mission field I wanted them in. Uh, and then the old men will dream dreams. And in the Bible, dreams have great power. All right? Great power. In their dreams can be from God. Now, the important thing when we read this is these are good things. Prophesying, dreams, visions are really good things, but they are not to give us God's will and his desires unless they match up with the word of God. Anything somebody says, this is, comes from God and it doesn't match the word of God, is false. And I've been in certain denominations where they say, people say, God said. Now what they say when they say God said, you're not to argue with me because this comes directly from God as they contradict the scriptures. And I'm going, that doesn't match, but God said it, it doesn't match the scriptures. But God told me, no, that wasn't God. So we need to be careful. If we have a vision, if we have a dream, if we have something impressed upon us and it does not match up to scripture, it's not God. Real simple. God gave his word to us for a reason. So that we can look up and say, this is what God says. And this is why when we counsel people, we talk to people, we give them advice, it must be godly, word of God, advice. And I have heard much counsel in churches that I wasn't a part of, of just walking by that was totally ungodly, totally worldly, and sometimes I put in my two cents worth, depending on you know who was being talked to or where I was at that church. Sometimes I go, God, help, let's get this person the right, right message. But it is sad when people give ungodly advice in the name of being Christian, and we see it all the time. If you if you've ever seen the movie Fireproof, there's that montage where he's getting godly advice, she's getting the world's advice. 
from people who are supposed to be Christians. Now, and it just strikes me so, but that is what happens in the world. If we're not careful, we can get ungodly advice from people who are supposed to be Christians that are supposed to be giving us godly advice. And we want to be careful because there's nothing wrong with dreams. There's nothing wrong with visions. There's nothing wrong with hearing God's voice as long as it matches up with scripture. And that's very important for us to be there. And then he says in verse 18, and my servants and my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Servants, doulos. We get those who work for God. The, the servant is the one who works for God. We also get the word deacon from that word. Um, but you know, he says the people that serve him, they will prophesy. It is so wonderful when you watch your people growing with God and they start speaking with the authority of God and bringing up his word in situations. And you're going, yes, that's what we want. My goal is for everybody to be able to speak with God's authority because they know God that closely. They know his word. That would be the ultimate of me having done my job because everybody's speaking God and we'll just all work on getting better as we go along. Unfortunately, we probably won't get there. If we can get some of the church doing that, or most of the church doing that, that would be great. <laughs> but God's promise was that his servants would speak. And I think as we get closer to the end days, we're going to see more and more of this, because people are being challenged to actually put up or shut up. We're getting into a time where if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to live as a Christian, and you're going to be ostracized, much as they did in this time. When Jesus had resurrected, if you weren't a Christian, you didn't say you were because they were, they were, going, to, they were going to kill you. You were going to be ostracized. You were going to be kicked out of the synagogue. You'd be chased out of towns. We're coming to this time where it's going to be, well, you go to church, I go to church. Well, go to jail. Okay. You know, but right now, we're at the tail end of the idea of the time and through the 40s, 50s, 60s, and a little bit before that, it was just good, good to go to church. You went to church to find godly people to do business with. You know, it was a networking of things. It really wasn't all about God. I want, it to be, I want our church to be all about God. And if they don't want to come because of that, then that's fine. We'll just be all about God because that's what's important. I want our people to be able to speak with authority of God when they speak. Then he starts getting into this little more end times, and, it, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath. So we're going to look at this. Wonders, portents, signs. When the disciples were on this world, God used signs all the time to prove his power. Healing, prophecy, all that kind. And he showed signs, and these were marks of power. Now, there are people that be, they, they're called cessationists. They believe that the power of the Holy Spirit stopped after the first century when the disciples died. I do not know where they get that doctrine. Because the Bible doesn't say, my Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He showed great signs all through the Old Testament. He showed signs all through the, prophets, uh, the disciples' days. And I have seen signs all over the place in our day. Does he do as many signs in today's world as before? I don't know whether he does more or not. We miss him a lot of times, especially in America, because we are just so sophisticated that we don't need his signs or don't believe in his signs. And I believe that we miss a lot of miracles because we're not looking for them. We go, well, it was just this. It was circumstance. It was the doctor. It was science. It was you know, just something crazy. There are times when on our end-of-the-month dinners, I believe God has done a miracle because everybody has left full and taken plates home and there was no food to start with, or very little. Now, I'm not going to say no, but very little. You're looking at the food and going, all right, is that enough food to feed 30, 40 people? And people are leaving with food. And they're all going away full. You know, is that a big miracle? No, but I do believe that God has performed some miracles in that. How many people have been healed by the power of God, not by just doctors? And you know, we get there all the time, and people always hedge this. You know, well, people get healed, and doctors get to do it. Yes, doctors get to help heal. But you know what? God is ultimately the healer, no matter what. And if we didn't have doctors and we were looking for prayer, we'd see more miracles than we do right now. 
I've seen miracles all over the place, so. Yeah. Yeah. God is still in the miracle business. He is still doing things. All you've got to do is read any of the biographies that are in our, in our shelf in there, and you'll see God doing miracles. Over and over and over again, he performs miracles when we're looking for them. And if we're not trying to write them off to coincidence or just good fortune. Uh, and he's out there showing signs. And then he goes, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, the power of God showing up in some very powerful ways. In verse 20, he starts quoting the end days. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord to come. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the end days, God says that the sun will be darkened and the moon shall be turned to blood. Now part of that is going to be the pollution that we're experiencing because the sun does not seem to hit the earth with as much power as it has in the past. And I don't know how many of you have seen nice bright red moons all over the place. Uh, not so much out here in the middle of nowhere, but when you're in the very polluted areas, you can see some very, very red moons. Uh, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And God said literally that he's going to shorten the days toward the end. Now, does he mean shorten each day or shorten the time period? I don't know. But you know, man is getting so evil that God is going to shorten the time. When he stood before Noah, he said, the days of man are numbered 120 years. 120 years and man's days are done. And we are getting there. We are getting there. I'm not going to put a number on it yet. But you know, time is getting short. Jesus is going to return soon for his church. And his church is going to be taken and then seven years of hardship start on this world for those who are left. And the church will be taken. The church will be removed from this world and we will get to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb while this world goes through as close to hell as you're going to have on earth. And it's not hell, but it's going to be bad. In the book of Revelation, we take just the information we know about people dying, and approximately 66% of the population of the world will die. Two out of every three people that are alive are going to die. Now, they're complaining about the COVID COVID uh, disease right now killing, killing, killing uh, one one twenty fourth of everybody who gets it, and the ones who get it are less than one percent of the population, and they're complaining about how bad this disease is. When God moves against the world during the tribulation period, people are going to die. Sixty six percent of the population is going to die. Of course, by that time, nobody's going to care because the God will have taken the ones who care away. The church cares. The church has an influence on the world to care. Do you realize during that period of time the influence of the Holy Spirit is going to be lessened? There aren't going to be the compassionate people. Satan is going to move with all the violence and vengeance that he has in his, at his possession and caring, mercy, love is going to be gone. We're already seeing the beginning parts of it in our world. We are moving toward pre-Christian period of time where people don't care. Kill the babies, kill the old people, kill the sick. They're not strong enough to live. They don't deserve to live in the first place. That's the world's way of thinking. And when the church is gone, it's going to be that way. If you're weak you, and, you're, and you're not a member of the church, you better find somebody strong to protect you. Or you're going to be abused and or killed. It's going to be a tough time to be alive in because the compassion is not going to be there. We, we think of street thugs you know, ruling in our day. It'll get really bad during that period of time. And, and it's predicted. The end days. And it says, In those days, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Invoke his name. Call on him. This is the important thing. How do you get saved? You call on Jesus. And then you call on him, you repent, and you accept that gift of salvation that he gives you. Very simple. So simple most people won't do it. 
because it's too simple. They're, they're too educated, they're too smart to have to do something that simple. But we call out to him. We repent. And then we bring Jesus into our life. But repentance is very important. Now, do we talk about repentance all the time? Not really, because in our day and age, nobody knows what repentance is in the first place. We tell somebody to repent, and you'll get looked at like, what is that? You turn away from your sin. You accept that what you're doing is wrong, and you turn away from it to do what is right. Repentance is a big part of salvation. God, I turn to you. I believe that you died for my sins, and I turn away from my sins, and I accept you. And I walk away from my sins back toward God. And I repent, and I accept that gift. And he goes, this is what I wanted. And then he fills us. So this is his message. We call upon God, and you shall be saved. And then it says, you men of Israel, and this is where he gets really, really interesting with them. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God, among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. So he's saying, this Jesus did miraculous things. He was known as, as somebody who did miraculous things. Josephus called him a magician, because he, he, he did not believe in miracles. He was a trickster. He, he played games with people. Well, you heal leprosy, you bring people back from the dead, you... You, you make things that are real things, because magicians will tell you they can't do those things. They can make you believe you see something, but they can't do things like heal diseases. They can't make the best wine at a, at a wedding that Jesus did at the very first miracle and make wine out of water. They could make something that looked like wine with chemicals, but you would never drink the stuff because it would be hazardous to your health to drink it. Jesus made real wine that was the best wine that anybody had made, which kind of makes sense. If God's going to make something, he's going to make something good. Uh, and he says, this Jesus who did miracles amongst you, verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, have you taken and by wicked hands have crucified him. This is very important. We're going to talk a little bit about this idea of the determinate counsel of God. This is something that is very hard for us to understand. The Bible tells us all the time that God has predestinated and planned everything. Now, how our free will fits into his plan and his predestination, I don't know. The predeterminate counsel of God is what I talk about so often. Before anything was created, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together and made a plan for this world. And the plan basically goes, we're going to, make, we're going to create the world, we're going to fill it, we're going to create man, man's going to sin, Jesus, will you die? And Jesus said yes. From that point, Jesus was on a path to go to the cross and be resurrected. Psalms, uh, Psalm 19.21 says that many are the plans of man, but God's plans will stand. It doesn't matter what I plan, God's plan is going to be what comes, comes out. And this is where it gets very interesting because there are two schools of thought about salvation. Neither one are right. All right? But we try to explain because we try to we read things like the predetermined plan, and Calvin comes along and says that God has a plan, and you're going. If He says you're going to be saved, you are going to get saved no matter what, and you and you don't have a choice in the matter. He calls it irresistible grace. God's going to say you are going to get saved, and He's going to give you such grace that you are going to get saved no matter what. All right, is that true? Yes, to a degree. If God says you're going to get saved, you're going to get saved. Can God arrange our life that we make the choice and somehow make it ours? I look at Paul on the road to Damascus. He's knocked off the horse. He's blinded. Paul could have said, no, I'm not going to follow you, God. Nobody in their right mind would say, no, I'm not going to follow you at that particular junction. Saul of Tarsus was almost forced by God to be obedient to salvation. Moses out in the backside of the desert, sees a bush on fire and goes to see it. 
If you've talked to God directly and been told what to do and you don't do it, you're very foolish. You know, did he have much choice in the matter? I don't know. You might look at that he didn't. But you know, a lot of people have lots of choice you know, on it. Can God arrange our circumstances so that we almost have no choice, irresistible grace? I believe he can. If he really wants somebody to do something, he can arrange it that way. Does he always? Maybe we'll find out that in heaven that he's done more of that than we expect. What brought each one of us to come to God? I don't know. Why did I come to God in a family where nobody went to church and at age four and five I was going to church on my own with nobody encouraging me? I don't know. God was drawing and calling me. I got saved at age 10, was able to answer my dad's questions to at least his satisfaction. At age 10, when I didn't know anything about what I had done, I was just a sinner that needed God. And I understood that much about it. And then watched him get saved two years later. What draws people to Christ? What draws somebody from a situation where nothing is godly in their environment to search out God? Part of that is that irresistible draw. And him coming into somebody's heart and saying, go forward. But we cannot take that as the only way because God all through the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon my name shall be saved. Now the Calvinist side of things will say, well, there's some words in there that, don't, that aren't said, and they'll go, whosoever will and is called by God shall be saved. And my answer to them is always the same. You cannot add your doctrine into the verse to make the verse say what you want it to say. Now those on the other side believe that it's all us. We make our decision to follow God or not follow God, and God bends his will to what we're going to do. So they disallow the sovereignty of God, and the verse I just read in Psalm, in me, Proverbs 19, I said Psalms earlier, but Proverbs 19, 21, the plans of man are many, but God's plans will stand. His plans are going to stand no matter what I do and what I say and how I act. His plans are what's going to be validated. He doesn't look down the courts of time and say, well, this person's going to say yes, so I've got to make sure my plan that I want to get doesn't involve, you know, involves them or doesn't involve them because they say no. If God needs to make us do something to get his plan done, he will make us do something to get it done. He will drag us kicking and screaming just as he did Jonah. Jonah was told, go to Nineveh. No, I'm not going to Nineveh. He goes, get swallowed by a fish. Okay, God, I guess I'll go to Nineveh. His choice. Oh, he still had a choice. Stay in that fish and be digested or go to Nineveh. You know, again, it's one of those choices where if you make any other choice, you're pretty dumb. But he still had a choice. But God knew where he was going and knew what his choice was going to be. So... Which side of these are, so, are going to be true? Somewhere in the center. Somewhere in the center is the truth. God says, whosoever shall believe in him shall be saved. Now, the, the Calvinist will say that we are so wicked, so evil, we cannot make a choice for God unless he moves us to make a choice for him. You know, and I understand what they're saying, though I disagree with it. You, know, you can want to make a good decision even though you're stuck. Many people who are alcoholics and drug addicted want to make right decisions, but they are in slavery to their sin and cannot make the right decision until they get to a bottom of the pit and they go, God, I need your help. So we see here God has a plan. When Jesus was born, he was born to die on the cross. When did he know that he was going to die on the cross? I don't know. Probably not as that infant baby. They didn't know much. But by the time he was 12 years old and he told Mary and Joseph when they said, you've worried us because we didn't know where you were, and he goes, you didn't, you didn't know that it would be about my father's business? You know, what, you, know you, didn't, you didn't realize that I'd be doing what I was supposed to be doing? Yeah. Um, and yet he subjected himself to Mary and Joseph until he was old enough to become a rabbi at age 30. Uh, before that, he literally wasn't supposed to teach. But you know, it's kind of an amazing thing for us. I have, been, I have learned things 
from kids, from teenagers, from new Christians that God has spoken into their life and they speak. Because when God speaks, he doesn't care who he speaks from. And sometimes the children get to lead the adults. It's pretty amazing sometimes when a discussion will be going on and the adults are overthinking the problem. And some young Christian or young kid will say, well, why don't we just do this? And it's such words spoken by faith that God can do anything. And it's like, oh, well, I guess it sounds like a good thing to do. You know, we need to be childlike. That's what Jesus told the disciples. You need to come as children. How do children come? In complete innocency. I'm just going to trust him. I'm just going to trust that he is who he says. I'm going to trust that he is God. The problem with us as Christians is sometimes we get too smart for our own good. We get into God's word and we start thinking we know how God works. And we start building a box around God and say, this is the only way God can do things. I think about the prophet Hosea. What prophet in their right mind would have ever been told, go marry a prostitute? And yet, he gets told to go marry a prostitute so he can show by sign God's love for his people. And God put a great love in his, in his heart for her, that woman because he kept going back and buying her back over and over again. And he didn't do it. You can read in it. It isn't that he, you know, that he was having trouble with it. God had made him put such a love into him that he desired to keep bringing her back. I'm sure he was heartbroken that she kept running away and falling away. But he used it to show God's love for us. No, and I don't care how much we walk with God and how much we want to walk with God, we still turn away from God. Because none of us are perfect. We go off in our direction so often and God has to come back and say, uh, back over here, get out of that mud, get out of that muck. And, we, and we're sitting there wondering how we got there in the first place. And then we feel sorry for ourselves. And this is important for us to understand. God loves us. Not because of what we do or what we don't do. He loves us. Jesus died for us. He put his clothing upon us. And we recognize it when we first get saved. We don't deserve anything except punishment. But somehow, as we walk with him through the years, oftentimes we get this attitude of, well, God, I'm doing a lot of good stuff for you. And we may not get totally arrogant about it, but in the back of our mind we start, because then when we fall, we're going, okay, God, I don't deserve to be loved by you. Well, we never did deserve to be loved by him, so what do we, what's the problem? Yeah. And this is something we have to keep reminding ourselves. We, no matter how close we get to him, no matter how long we've been walking with him, no matter how much the Holy Spirit has changed us to be like him, still do not deserve his love. Do not deserve his attention. And that's hard. Because we as human beings get to, well, God, you know, I go to church all the time. I teach. I read my Bible. I'm really a good person. I really care. I, told, I talk to people about you all the time. You know, God, you, you know, we would never say these words, but you're lucky to have me because look how close, how close to you I'm getting. And we have to recognize nowhere, no matter how good we get, do we deserve his love. He gives us his love because he chooses to love us. And that's the beauty. When I fall, I don't have to wallow around in the mud trying to figure out how I'm going to get clean enough in the mud to come back to God. Because I'm not going to get clean in the mud. And I'm going to need help getting out of the mud. And he's the only one that can help me get out of the mud in the first place. You know, and this is something we have to recognize. I cannot do anything on my own. It's him. Jesus came to the cross because that is what they had already planned. Now, they put them there. But, you know, Paul, uh, Peter, Paul, Peter here is telling them, you guys put him on the cross. All right? People will go all the time, who killed Jesus? You know, well, not even us. God the Father did. It said that he took pleasure in disciplining Jesus, why did he take pleasure? Because he knew the end result was us. 
And I've said over and over again, I think God got a bad deal out of that deal. Now what he gets out of us, he obviously gets something that he says is worth it, but he gets us. You know, Jesus came to this world to die. And he came for the Father to put him on the cross. Yes, the Jews put him there. And yes, ultimate, we as sinners put him there. And the Jews delivered him. They performed their priestly duty very well. They offered the sacrifice. And the Romans were the executioner. All three groups were very important for actually putting him on the cross. But as Jesus told Pilate, if it wasn't, if you, you have no power over me, I go here willingly. Jesus was in full control of everything that happened to him from Gethsemane all the way to the cross. Because when you read that, who, he gave up his spirit. He did. He went to the cross by choice. He went through the scourging by choice. He never called all the angels to deliver him. He went there by his choice because the Father told him to go. That's hard for us to understand. Because when we go through pain, when we go through suffering, we tend to complain and gripe. But you know it's no less God's will when we go through it. If we can really grab hold of the scriptures and say, in everything give thanks for this is the will of Christ Jesus in you, how different would our life be? When we go through the pain and suffering to say, God, don't understand it, but I know it's your will, so I help me to rejoice and watch what God does. Now, I'm not saying we're going to rejoice in the pain. That's insane. It's insane to be happy that I'm in pain. That, that is called masochism. You know, we, don't, we don't want to enjoy being in pain. We definitely shouldn't be enjoying putting in pain, but you know, if I'm enjoying being put into pain, I've got a problem. But... God has put me there, I go, God, you've got a plan. I want to rejoice, not in the pain, but your plan. Jesus did not rejoice in the pain. He did not rejoice in the cross. He did not rejoice in the death. He rejoiced in what was going to be accomplished through that action. All right? We rejoice not in the pain that we're put through, but we rejoice in whatever God is going to do on the other side. People get drawn to God when we stand firm with him through the midst of pain and suffering. Because they look at us and go, you guys are crazy. You're, you're not griping and complaining about everything. Well, it doesn't do any good to gripe and complain. Anyway, God has a plan and I, want to, I can't wait. I really literally can't wait to see what God's going to do. Because Romans 8.28 is always true. And you know, in my life, I've watched him do great things through my pain and the good things that have happened to me. I wish he could do everything through good things, but it, never, it doesn't work that way. He brings hardship into our life so that he can bring good. And people get saved. People draw closer to God through our pain when we, when we do it right. Because they see that God is faithful. His plans always come true. They always do. He has a plan and he's going to make it work. Daniel 4, 35-37 talks about God's will is over all. And Daniel is a great book to see that God is one who's going to make things work. These young youth get taken off to, to Babylon. They get put into to the school for being taught to be wise men. Part of that school where they were made, made eunuchs. And they come up and say, we can't eat the king's food. Let us just eat our vegetables and, and watch us be healthier and better looking than the rest of these guys. Now, if you think about that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense that these guys are going to be healthier and bigger by just eating vegetables. All right? The other guys would get fat. They're eating all the, the dainties, and I'm sure they loaded up on, the, on the, the sweets and all of that. They come in, and they go, no, we're not going to bow down before the idol. They go in, and they interpret the dream of the king. Daniel ends up in the lion's den. You know, and because of their faithfulness, God is exalted. 
Joseph gets sold into slavery. His brothers are figuring as a slave he's going to be dead within 10 years. We're never going to see him again. When they saw him, uh, let's see, 17, 13, 15 years later, they were very surprised. Matter of fact, they didn't even recognize him because they weren't looking for him. I mean, but they thought maybe they might see him in Egypt, they might have recognized him. But a slave didn't last 17 years, uh, 13 years in the, you know, in the in the slavery. And what did Joseph tell him? You intended it for good, but God intended it for good. Or you intended it for bad, and God intended it for good. You know, when bad things happen to us, people intend for it to be bad. When we go through hardship, when we go through trials, when we go through persecution, people mean it for bad. God means it for good. Because that's an opportunity for us to learn obedience. And when we learn obedience, it may also be an opportunity for us to go back and forgive people. People like Corey Tenboom, who had to go back, and God told her to go back to the guards and tell them that she forgave them. And she goes, absolutely no way, God, I can't do that. And she finally did. You got somebody like uh, Zamperini, who was told to go back to Japan and tell the guards that he had forgiven them for their brutal, I mean, he was brutal, brutally beat. You know, Corey Tenboom was not nicely treated, but she was not beat near as bad as he was, and he had to go back and tell them that he forgave them. What happens when God asks us to go back and tell somebody that we forgive them for how they treated us? And most of us don't have anything like that to forgive, but the very first thing we go, uh-uh, God, there's no way I'm asking that person, telling that person I forgive them because I don't. But just like both of them didn't want to go back and say, I, I forgive you. But you know what? When God tells us to do something, we're going to do it. So we might as well just give up and do it. Believe me, I fought God tooth and nail over a lot of things in my lifetime, too. When we read in these books, these guys all fought God tooth and nail before they finally did it. But the plans of God are always going to be fulfilled. So the more we learn that, the easier our life gets. Because God is going to win. When he tells us to do something, we need to do it. Proverbs 16.9 says that man makes plans, but God directs his path. All right? Uh, Isaiah 53.10 said that God took pleasure in the death of Jesus or the death of the Messiah. And that is hard for us to understand. Was he very happy that he had to die? No, but he was happy about the results of what was going to happen. People were going to be redeemed and come to him. You know, and this is so important. Romans 9:18 says that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy on. That's another one of those verses that are hard for us to understand. You know, God, I accepted you as my Lord and Savior. What do you mean you're going to have mercy on who you want? We have a hard time because of this foreknowledge thing that drives us crazy. People do not like the idea of God knowing. But you know, if God does not know the beginning from the end, he is not God. Plain and simple. Most of the gods people follow cannot be gods because they don't know things. They cannot predict the future. God in the Old Testament said many times, show me another God who has told you the future. Over and over, our Bible is filled with about a third of it being prophecy. Much of it has been fulfilled already. Some of it has not been fulfilled already. But God has proven that he is God by telling the future. Daniel was able to go to Cyrus and say, Cyrus, I've got to show you something. This was written 110 years ago. Here's your name in the book. That you're going to send Israel back to their land. It so impressed them that he actually sent Israel back to the land. He was named directly. Nebuchadnezzar saw the future so clearly that people believed that the book of Daniel was, was written after the Roman Empire 
which is why when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it blew their mind because the book of Daniel was in there. And they know that it was written before the Roman Empire. And I'm going, this can't be. That book, we know that book couldn't be written ahead of time because nobody knows the future, except for God. God knows our future. He knows what we're going to do. He knows how we're going to act. He knows what it takes to get us to do what he wants. He knows how to get somebody else to cover when we say no. And if we are the only one that can be the one to cover it, he knows how to make us do it. Now, I don't know. I'm, I've been a manager most of my life, and I've been able to usually get people to do what I want by laying out the right plan. And you know what's really funny is when they do what you want and they think it was their idea, which is really fun. You know, I thought this up. Good. You just think you keep doing that. You go out and do because that's exactly what I wanted you to do anyway. I think God does a lot of that with us. He sets it up, sets up our life that we do just what he wants us to do, and we think it's us. We think it's us. This is why I say somewhere between the extreme of Calvinism and the extreme of Arminianism is where God is. Probably closer to, to Calvinism than I would like it to be <laughs> because God manipulates and moves things around. Because all God has to do is kind of push us in certain paths and, and we'll make the right decision when we get to the end of that path and he knows it. And he just sets roadblocks up. And if, you know, can you go over the roadblock? Yes, but we are human beings. If there's a roadblock, most of us will go the way that's easiest. Not, most, not many of us will try to fight hard against the roadblocks. God knows what he's doing to make sure he gets what he wants done. And he knows. He knows when I'm not going to say yes. He knows when I'm going to say yes. And he can make, either make me say yes, even though I don't want to, or he can say, fine, I'll just bring somebody else behind you who's going to stay, be obedient. When we watch the movie Encounter, you know, the guy says, well, I didn't say yes. And he goes, I knew you wouldn't. That's why I brought another servant right behind you that would be obedient. God knows. Could he have made that person, you know, what, what could he have done? I'm not going to stop and pick this up. He could have just stopped the car. He could have given him a flat tire. He could have stopped the car. He could have given him a bump that stopped, and he could have stopped the car. And he does that kind of stuff too. You know, how many times have you been obedient? I know in my life, how many times have I been obedient when I didn't want to? I got bugged into taking somebody somewhere so that I would be at the right place to minister to somebody. And if I hadn't been bugged and gone there very grudgingly, I wouldn't have been at the right place to minister to that person. Was that God? Probably. Saying, oh, well, I want you to be there. You need to be here, so I'm going to make sure you're there. God can make sure that we are where we're supposed to be. God put Saul of Tarsus on the road of Damascus. He blinded him for three days so that he would have to be led around and seek God. Very much forcing him to be obedient. What a action. Now, was God that strong with most people? No. Jeremiah telling God, I'm not going to speak with you because every time I speak for you, I get into trouble. His next verse says, the word of God burned in my mouth and I couldn't help but speak. I had been there. God, I don't want to say that. No, I'm not going to say it. And it's like, I must say it. I'm not going to say it. And before long, I am speaking the words that are burning in my mouth that have to be spoken. God can make us be obedient if he chooses. He can also bring somebody else to be obedient for him when we fully choose not to and somebody else can be the one that does it. He is going to get his way. He is God. God can use the unsaved. It's kind of funny to watch somebody who definitely is not saved give the gospel message to somebody. It's like, wow, you have been listening. I don't know how, I don't even know why I'm saying this. Because God has put it in your mouth and it needed to be said. Because somebody else wasn't saying what they were supposed to say. It's an amazing thing to watch what God can do. And know that God is God. He can do the miraculous to make people be obedient. What he really likes, I think, is when we're obedient at just the request. I don't think he wants to twist our arm to make us obedient. 
and I don't know how many rewards there are for having our arm twisted to, to be obedient. I don't think Jonah got a lot of rewards for, for saving Nineveh. Because even after, he, even after they repented, he sat on the hill and said, God, I'm waiting for you to destroy them. And God says, they repented. I'm not destroying them. I knew that was how you were going to be, God. I knew that if they repented, you wouldn't destroy them. And he had to be spanked on the hillside. <laughs> you know, he had to be spanked to get him there, and then he had to be spanked by God on the hillside saying, what's wrong with you? Many of us go very grudgingly to be obedient to God. And God says, I'm forcing you to do this. Now I'm going to force you to accept this. Would you just learn to be obedient? And you know, this is where we're supposed to be. But it all comes down to this predestination. It's a word we don't like as Christians. There's lots of Christians who can't stand predestination and election. The Bible teaches it. Learn to understand it. It is that God has a plan and his plan is going to happen. Whether we like it or not, he's going to make his plan happen. He will either use us kicking and screaming against it, or he'll bring somebody else in to do it willingly, but his plan will come out. But we also have free will. And this is what's hard for us to figure out you know, uh, on this. And very hard to do. Verse 24 says, Whom God hath raised, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Jesus died. Now, in one sense, it was very easy for Jesus to die because he knew he'd be resurrected. It did not lessen the pain of death. It did not lessen the pain of the beating. But on the other side, he knew he would be resurrected. How many times do we go into something knowing that God has a plan and it's a good plan? It helps us go through the hardships knowing that God has a plan. And if I would just embrace his plan, he will eventually show me that plan. Joseph went into slavery at 17 and was promoted at 30. Met his brothers two years into the famine. 17, uh, 15 years suffering. And nowhere does it say that he complain to God. Now I'm pretty sure in, in that time he probably complained at least once or twice in prayer. God, I don't understand this. I, you know, God, you've made promises to me. Um, my brothers are supposed to bow down to me. My dad's going to bow down to me. How can they? I'm a slave. How can any of this happen? But he held on to what he knew. And when he was promoted, I almost think the day that he was promoted, he goes, okay, my brothers are coming sometime soon. I almost think he was looking for his brothers when he got promoted. My brothers are going to bow down to me, just like God said, because I am number two in all of Egypt. And they'd be bowing down to me even if they hadn't had my dreams. I, I really do think he was looking for his brothers, probably every single day, looking for his brothers. Because now he was promoted, and he could now see why his brothers were going to bow before him. He could now see why his father and mother would bow down to him. Which didn't make sense when he had the vision. Because that was crazy, to believe that mom and dad were going to bow down to you. Now he's number two in all of Egypt. Everybody who shows up in his presence has to bow. As soon as he got promoted, he can go, okay, God, you're, my visions are coming true. When God tells us something's going to happen, it's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen. Jesus went to the cross and to death knowing he was going to rise. And again, it did not make that death any easier. To die hurts. To be scourged hurts. To take all the sins of the world upon your perfect body and be separated from the Father hurts in a way that we can't even understand because we're separated at birth. He had never been separated from the Father when he took the sins of the world upon himself and was separated from him. How God knew the pain of being separated from himself when that had never happened is, is hard to picture, but he knows all things. So he knew what he was facing. He knew that he'd be dead for three days and be resurrected. So much so that he kept telling the disciples that that was coming and they didn't believe him. They didn't believe he was going to die, and they didn't believe he was going to rise again from the dead. 
even though he had told him over and over for three years because he had known it from eternity past. I'm going to go die and I'll be resurrected after three days. When we know that there's a limit to the pain that we're going to, it makes it easier to get through. The only problem is we don't usually know the limit. We just know God's putting us through pain. We know that there's going to be something good on the other side of the pain, but we don't know, is it going to be three days? Is it going to be 13 years? Is it going to be 50 years? We don't know the limit of the pain that we've got to go through. We do know one thing, in this lifetime is, is the longest it's going to last. We can be born in pain and end in pain, and that's the limit of what that pain's going to be, because when we get to heaven, God's going to be there saying, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is the beauty of following God. He has a plan. He knows when we're going to say no. He knows when we want to say yes. He knows what he has to do to make us say yes or if he wants us to say yes. He knows what has to happen to make his plan work. And he is the only one that can move heaven and hell to make sure that it happens. He can use Satan himself to make sure that it happens. Because he can put us through all kinds of trials and Satan is the tool. Satan comes before God and says he wants to challenge Job. <coughs> and God says, okay, you want to challenge Job? Be my guest. This is your limits. And he goes out and he gives Job a hard time. Comes back and says, well, if we do this to Job, he'll, he'll give up. And God says, okay, you can do that to him. Comes back a third time. You know, if, if we take his health away, he's going to reject you. And God said, okay, you can take his health away. And he still did not reject God. And then, it doesn't tell us this, but Satan had one more ace up his sleeve. He says, I'm going to send him his friends and tell him, and we're going to make his friends help him be disobedient. And ultimately, those are the ones that, got, that broke Job down. Job got to the place where it got hard and he almost gave up. Because that's what, toward the end of the book, he's complaining. And so would we if we had four friends telling us how bad we are for, for a period of time. You know, these are the guys that are supposed to encourage us, build us up, edify us. We need to take a lesson from Job to be good friends. Build one another up. Edify one another. Build people up within the church. Not tear people down. When people have gone into sin, they don't need people criticizing them. We don't need somebody criticizing us when we've done wrong. We know that we've, been, that we've messed up. We know that we have messed up and and in Job's case, he hadn't even messed up. We just know that bad things are happening to us, and we're going, God, I don't understand any of this. I don't know why I'm going through all of this. And God says, I've got a plan. Just rest in my plan. To learn to have faith rest is so important. God has a plan. We live in the finished work of Christ. He's made us perfect. We just need to rest in faith that he has a plan. And he does. And the more we fight against that plan when he's bringing us through hard times, the harder life is. And he goes, I have a pre-designed plan. And he goes, for Jesus, I am bringing the resurrection to Jesus. And we're going to stop at this point. <laughs> Jesus dying because we're going to a prophecy that comes from the mouth of David. Next. Lord, just help us to learn to be obedient. Lord, help us to be, have rest in what you have in our life and our plans. Help us to always follow you and to seek you and to just know that you have a plan and be thankful that you have it and be joyful in what you bring our way. Even when it seems all hell is breaking loose against us, you have a plan and you're going to work all things together for good and you tell us to rejoice in all things. We just thank in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5, 8 says, 
But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.